But the benefits are huge, as you can imagine. Some of our clients were on like Webpack 4. When Webpack 5 came out, we basically, with some of the NX upgrades, we provided also those migrations. So it was really just running a single command that would upgrade them to Webpack 5. It would like adjust the scripts and stuff that they had in there. And so it's a mostly painless upgrade. You just sold me on NX. If nothing else you've said today, that just sold me because I have spent more hours upgrading Webcat configurations and other things. Whew, that's cool. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Square is the platform that sellers trust. There is a massive opportunity for developers to support Square sellers by building apps for today's business needs. And I'm here with Shannon Skipper, head of developer relations at Square. Shannon, can you share some details about the opportunity for developers on the Square platform? Yeah, absolutely. So we have millions of sellers who have unique needs and Square has apps like our point of sale app, like our restaurants app, but there are so many different sellers, tuxedo shops, florists, who need specific solutions for their domain. And so we have a Node SDK written in TypeScript that allows you to access all of the backend APIs and SDKs that we use to power the billions of transactions that we do annually. And so there's this ma massive market of sellers who need help from developers. They either need a bespoke solution built for themselves on their own node stack, where they are working with Square Dashboard, working with Square Hardware, or with the ecom, you know, what you see is what you get builder. And they need one more thing. They need an additional build. And then finally, we have the app marketplace where you can make a node app and then distribute it so it can get in front of millions of sellers and be an option for them to adopt. Very cool. All right. If you want to learn more, head to developer.squareup.com to dive into the docs, APIs, SDKs, and to create your Square developer account. Start developing on the platform sellers trust. Again, that's developer.squareup.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're new to the pod, don't forget to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime party animal, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Check out our membership program at changelog.com slash plus plus. Drop the ads, get bonuses like extended episodes, and directly support the show. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for shipping JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, you know what time it is. It's party time, y'all. Hello and welcome to another episode of JS Party. I'm your MC today. This is K-Ball talking and I'm here with a special guest, Yuri Stroopfunner. Hey. Yuri, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. Good to have you here. I'm excited about this conversation. So let's get started, actually, before we dive into the topic of the day, which I'll hint is monorepos in JavaScript, though this being JS party, we may party on whatever comes up. Let's start with you a little bit. Can you introduce yourself to the JS party listeners and say something about your background and, and how you got into working in DevTools? Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Yuri. I'm from the very north of Italy. Been in software engineering already for a long, long time. So I started basically in the Java world, did a lot of ASP.NET and later in my professional career. Finally ended up in the front end space much more as that got more popular as the whole like SPA land got more traction basically. I finished up in the Angular community for a whole lot and I still am. And from there basically I then did 
segue into more the tooling space. And so that's where, where I'm currently at. So right now I'm I'm working at Nawal, right, for a couple of years. I'm doing consulting there. And most recently I'm, I'm, I took over the role of the director of developer experience. So focusing a lot of on content production, teaching people about monorepos, about what we do at Nawal with NX and, and Learn and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into that. What is NX? How does it work? What do you do? Yeah, so NX is, uh, it has a lot of different facets, actually. So it, it's like we tell people always NX is kind of a, a smart, fast and extensible build system tool. So kind of like a build framework, if you want. Although a lot of people then, the next question that comes up usually is then like, is it, well, does it replace things like Webpack or, or like things like ES Build or SWC? And it actually doesn't, right? It's, it's mostly a tool for coordinating and scheduling and orchestrating tasks, which then might use Webpack. They might, those tasks might use ES Build. That really depends on your project. So it's really a tool that helps you run tasks within a project, which is most useful if you have multiple projects in a workspace, for instance, which is like segue into the monorepo space where an X is built for. A lot of our folks also use it just for single projects. Because NX can also be used in like a fashion where you would say like similar to create React app, where it abstracts away the, the underlying build tooling, right? But it gives you a whole lot of configuration options that you can then fine tune to whatever you need to produce. But it comes with like generators for scaffolding your project and comes for running the projects, stuff with that, like that, or also easy setting up of like testing environments and Cypress and, and like those tools. So it, it can be a good tool integrator and function very much like a create React app setup, but with more possibilities, basically. Interesting. So I may be showing how long I'm in the JavaScript ecosystem, but when you started talking initially, you're saying it's a task runner. I was thinking, okay, so is this like another iteration of Grunt and Gulp, which we're doing task running of some sort. And then we, we got away from those because we had dedicated build tools. Yeah. Does this bring that back or something different? That's a good point. I actually never, never thought it from that view. And I've actually been also around when Grant kind of became popular and then like not again, like because Gulp came up. So to some degree, it hooks into that, but just from a very high level, right? So it, it doesn't really, because Grant basically allowed you to stick together different like your scripts basically, right? And combine them and then run them and fine tune them. Mm -hmm. So from a high level perspective in terms of running tasks, it definitely does. There's some similarity there, but it's mostly going into the, the direction of like you have some like multiple projects to run. You need to run them efficiently because otherwise things getting slow, right? With a lot of projects. So that is when NX kind of kicks in and, and has things like caching and stuff to optimize it's that, those things, right? But it is a task runner at a high level, yeah. Interesting. So if Gulp was a task runner that was very low level, you were running it inside your system and often clutching together a build system out of tasks. And then we said, okay, that's not the right abstraction layer for projects. We need a, a dedicated build system. So we set up a build system for that. And now what you're saying is, okay, now we're coordinating multiple projects. They have their yep. own build systems perhaps, but we need to run tasks and coordinate. So maybe at this layer above the build system is where a task runner makes sense. Yeah, I mean like, Technically, you could still have like a project within those many projects that you manage in a given workspace, right? Which uses Gulp underneath, right? To do its building, mm -hmm. right? And so an X would just like coordinate that and run it, whatever it sees. Okay, this project needs now to be run because it got changed in the recent PR or something, right? So it would coordinate it to Gulp and say like, yeah, run it, right? So next doesn't really care what or how the build looks underneath. That's also why it doesn't replace anything like Webpack or ES build, rather it integrates with those if you want, right? So yeah. Got it, okay. And then another thing you mentioned a little bit was around 
kind of having scaffolding, which once again reminds me, Create React App is one area. It reminds me of Yeoman that was trying to do like scaffolds and things like that. So how does the scaffolding piece of NX work? For that purpose, maybe it might be interesting to zoom out a little. So NX is basically, as I mentioned before, right? It, it has maybe two big areas right now where like at the very core, it's a fast task scheduler, right? And so if you have already a workspace or something like if you have like multiple projects that are managed with an npm workspace right then you can add an x on top to f- make that fast that scheduling of the tasks right because there's things like caching or parallelization and then more intelligent running of tasks in, in how you sequence them and maybe we can dive a bit into that later but that is basically at the core and then you can however use the i, I would say more powerful approach which is like stick plugins on top of that right and so you can say, okay, I'm having a workspace with a React application in there, one with an Angular application in there, right? So we want to manage them together. And so we basically ship with like dedicated plugins for React, for Angular, for a couple of those core or most popular frameworks. And there are community plugins as well that you can kind of install, right? Where someone from the community may came up and say like, well, I have a plugin for Go, right? Because like, I happen to use it, created an NX plugin, has a dedicated API, so you can use that as well. And those plugins then on the other side, they then come often, they don't have to, but often they come with dedicated scaffolding, which we call generators. And it's very similar to what you mentioned, like Geoman, because it can be a scaffolding generator from like setting up the entire project for you, right? So like create me a new React application, it would scaffold out the entire React app, which everything you need. But it can also be as tiny as add me a new route to an existing, a route component to an existing Angular, uh, mm-hmm. so existing, yeah, Angular or React application, right? So it, it can be at different levels. That really depends on, on what type of generator you provide. Because in the end, it's, it's mostly AST manipulation, right? So those generators come with some sort of API that we give developers, such that it's more easy to interact with the file system and stuff. So we have some facilities around that. But in the end, like, depending on how deep you want to go with your generator, you can go from just doing file search replace or really digging into ASDs and stuff. So That makes sense. Okay, so if I'm interpreting it correctly, the NX is basically filling a lot of roles, but really at this layer of you know multi-project coordination. Yep. Right, you have multiple, or what might in some worlds be multiple repos, multiple distinct bodies of code that have you know their own nuances, their own builds up. You're using all of these in coordination. Let's actually optimize that coordination. Think how we do it. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. Because in, in the end, like once you have multiple projects in the same workspace, which is usually a Git repository, right? Then you are kind of in the space of a monorepo, right? A lot of people don't think about it that way often, right? Like they don't even like maybe know the term monorepo like in depth, right? But like once you have one project, which is usually how it starts, you have one project, you create a couple of like split out libraries which lives in the same repo and you just link them together. And at some point you add an R project that you already kind of start building like a super small monorepo, but it is kind of a monorepo, right? The initial idea of an X when it got created by its founders was actually to give good support for monorepo scenarios because like both founders were, are ex-Googlers. So they saw basically how monorepos obviously are used within Google at a whole other scale, right? Really large scale. But they wanted to have, like, when they left Google, to have something similar for the community outside, but not as complicated to use, right? Because Google has actually open sourced their Blaze tool, or which they call Bazel in the open source world. It is very powerful. It is, however, also quite complicated to set up, right? And so they wanted to find a good balance where you could use it very easily on the JIS ecosystem, right? Which would fit in nicely there, because like, that was the main focus of NX in general, although it's 
kind of general purpose if you want. We could also build Java projects, right? But it was built for a very good, very focusing on that JS front end ecosystem. That makes sense. Well, that's actually a good segue into this area of mono repos. Let's actually first kind of step and define a little bit like what is a mono repo? When you say mono repo, I think you have something in mind and you mentioned a lot of people start doing mono repos and not even necessarily realizing that's what they're doing. So can you define it for us? What is a mono repo? Yeah, sure. I think like we already got a good start into that actually because we slowly approached it, right? Mentioning, okay, you have multiple projects, you coordinate stuff between them. That is actually what a monorepo is for me. It's just like a collection of, or it is a set of multiple projects that live in the same context, if you want, right? In the same uh, Git repository, which is most often the case. And then most of the time out of those things like that you have in your like packages and applications, there start to be relationships, right? Because you want to make share code, you want to collaborate. And so there are actually connections between them. Potentially a monorepo could also be just a, a collocation of different projects, right? But those are less useful in general, right? So we usually try to set up monorepos which kind of share stuff between them in a controlled way. I think the monorepo term in general is, is a bit misleading sometimes because if you talk to people and say like, hey, this would be a good use case for a monorepo and they're like, Oh yeah, I heard about that, but I don't really have that case where I want to stick all my company code in one Git repository, right? Which is, yeah, that's what you hear like from things like Google or Facebook or Meta right now. But that's not obviously in which environment we are. And in fact, like what we often see and when we do also consulting for, for large companies is they have multiple monorepos maybe in their organization, right? Maybe per department, per area, right? Which makes sense. There are some related projects that would make sense to have like co-located in one, one single Git repository, and then basically start working from there. But you can have multiple of those and still also communicate with single project repositories if you want. So yeah, from a definition point of view, I just usually mention this is a, a multi-project repository, right? That is what a monorepo is. That makes a lot of sense. And I think when you look at something like the JavaScript ecosystem, there is this sort of approach of let's pull out lots of small projects together. Let's create many composable pieces those composable pieces may be related to each other. They're trying to, to accomplish the same goal. And so a monorepo feels like it fits very naturally into this ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you look, for instance, in the open source world right now, for instance, all the major frameworks that you see out there, like Vue, React, Angular, like all of those Next.js, they are monorepos if you look at them. Like they have small packages that they release individually to like NPM, right? But like they're autonomous packages basically that they host in the same repository simply because they share obviously some part right and and also in other projects that like i know a couple that are more in the ui space right like a design library or design ui design kit so what you often have there is you have some core library which has the functionality and then you have like on top like the ui library for tailwind specific stuff for i don't know like material based right so and, and again you have a monorepo literally because you have that core and the top level ui specific design libraries depend on that core obviously because they reuse functionality from there those monorepos are more what i call like the package oriented monorepos where your goal is to just have a set of packages that work together and you want to publish them with the goal to, to NPM, right? And then there are more the app-heavy repositories and monorepos, which is more which you find like in organizations where you are, have product development, things like that, right? And a lot of the times people in that area don't think monorepos could help them a whole lot, but it is actually also kind of an architectural style if you want, right? So very often you see there you have like large 
React application. Let's say you use Create React app, right? You actually have a large kind of monolithic structure where you have one app with lots of folders in that same app, which are your domain areas, right? And so what we usually propose people in that case is split those areas out into small libraries, right? Those libraries don't necessarily have to be shareable, reusable, or whatnot. They can be very specific to one application, but you already get a much better overview of how your project is composed together by having them split up rather than having them at single folders within a same application. And that's also what an X kind of helps you do, uh, refactor out those things. And those refactorings then come with a couple of good and nice features and side effects uh, afterwards. What's going on, party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Hasora. Hasora lets you create dynamic, high-performance GraphQL and REST APIs from your databases in minutes with granular authorization and caching baked in. All this without touching your underlying database. Go from data to API in literally minutes. As the technology landscape evolves, a key bottleneck for teams is making data accessible, especially in enterprise environments. Modernizing applications and building new features is critically dependent on being able to shape, control, and ship your data to interfaces demanding always available real-time access. Asura solves this problem by connecting your databases, your REST servers, your GraphQL servers, and third-party APIs to provide a unified, real-time GraphQL API across all your data sources. Imagine your tech stack is a Postgres database, Go is your backend language, REST APIs, and vendors who only expose REST and React for your front end. Hasora can give you an instant GraphQL API for your front end, an API that's protected with roles, caching, and everything you expect from a secure API, and the ability to connect all your services into a single API. All this while ensuring the performance, the security, and the reliability requirements of your API layer. The most important business value Hasora provides is reducing time to market. Imagine if your team can go from data to API in literally minutes, it would be a game changer. Everything they do is through the lens of making developers productive and getting to production ready in minutes. The easiest way to get started with Hasora is with Hasora Cloud. It is fully managed and scales as you grow. Head to hasura.io slash jsparty. That's H-A-S-U-R-A dot I-O slash jsparty. Again, hasura.io slash jsparty. Well, let's get back into it then and talk about the benefits of moving to monorepos or moving your code into a monorepo setup and any sort of drawbacks there might be as well. So you you kind of tease that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, I could actually point out that we created a, a dedicated site based on our experience because we do a lot of consulting as well, right? So we don't just build the open source product and X, but we also do consulting for big companies, which is mostly how we feed our ideas back into NX, the open source project. And so from that experience, we, we obviously saw like, where do you get a benefit and what do you need at the same time to have once you start a monorepo? Because like one thing said immediately up front is like, you shouldn't jump naively into a monorepo and say like, oh, this is so cool, right? And sharing code is so easy. Let's just 
put all our products in there and not think enough, right? Because then like six months in, you probably will regret it. I can already tell you now, right? And so we created a website, which is called monorepo.tools, where we kind of try to emphasize one of the most high level advantages, what a monorepo gives you versus like what is called often a poly repository situation, as well as like some of the features that you should have when you look for a specific tools to use together with a monorepo, right? And so I think like the top level advantage of a monorepo in general is the code sharing, code sharing collaboration. And that's also why it is important, like when you set up a monorepo, to think about its structure and how things relate within a monorepo. So not just co-locate stuff, because sure, it might be nicer because like you have the products side by side and you can easily jump around without jumping Git repositories. But the benefit you would get out of that is kind of low, right? So it probably is not worth the effort. And what very often happens is you will have some shared parts within that monorepo, right? So which you can use across projects, and then there will be parts that are just specifically a single project in that monorepo. But still the fact of having it just in one Git repository, it is very easy to share code, of course, because like if I have already a library handy and someone needs a similar thing, very often it's quite low effort to actually split that out into maybe a dedicated shareable library with that functionality, and so both projects can depend on it. And rather, obviously, if you have a polyrepo scenario, it's kind of more difficult, right? Because obviously then it's like, okay, now we need to create a new repository. Who does the setup of CI, right? Like, because you should probably have that. How do we version it? And how do we handle backwards compatibility? All that type of things, right? So it makes it obviously much, much faster to do that than monorepo because creating a new library, especially if you have things like generators and NX, you just, it's really literally couple of commands you launch and you have a new React library that you can reference and, and, and go ahead, right? Move components around, refactor the code and, and go ahead. So that whole collaboration part is really, really, uh, I think, cool and, and fundamental in a monorepo. And it's also very interesting when you need to do experiments, right? So very often you need to like, oh, let's actually try to change how we will replace our buttons, like experiments like that, A-B testing kind of stuff, right? In a monorepo, it's very easy. You just change it. You see the effect, you can deploy it to a separate environment, see what, what the actual result is. Because everything is kind of atomic in one PR and one comment, right? Which can also be easily then reverted afterwards. Rather than publishing a, a beta release or something of a package, pinging the other author on the other side, like, please upgrade. And so it's mostly like that overhead that you get rid of in a monorepo. Yeah. But yeah, at the same time, obviously. Once you see those benefits, what often happens, that's actually one point also with an X. Like once you see how quickly you can create libraries, how quickly you can spin up something new, people will do it all the time, right? It's so easy. And then obviously if you don't have the tooling in place, then what you end up is like you have like a real lot of, a lot of projects in the same repo and your CI time will go nuts basically, right? So you will have like 30 minutes to 40 minutes to an hour of CI run just to get a PR merged, right? Which obviously is then you lose all that benefit of being fast at development time when you cannot merge your PR into the main branch because it takes over an hour, right? And so that then gets the problem. And so that's where the whole tooling aspect comes in, where you need to have tooling in place that kind of can support you with that. That makes sense. So a couple of questions to dig a little bit deeper. So that, that shared code is an interesting one to look at because I think one thing that having different repositories makes you do or, or having that published step is you have to be very, very clean about where are your boundaries and where are your APIs. And I have not worked in a library type monorepo, as you mentioned, but I am working in an application uh, monorepo right now. And mm -hmm. definitely see that sometimes if you're not careful, you can get sort of tangled dependency chains because people don't have to think as clearly about where their lines are. So I'm kind of curious how, Absolutely. how you address that. What are there 
best practices? Are there things the tooling can do to help there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually a very good point. And we try to, and that's a point that a lot of people underestimate initially, right? So it's kind of similar to the speed aspect, right? You jump just in and then people start like, oh, this is cool, like that date library already exists. Let me just use it, right? Without even like asking anyone, like just, you end up with a really spaghetti code kind of situation where you have a lot of cross dependencies. So what we do in NX, we, we try to also support that with tooling. So in NX specifically, what we have is we have a dedicated, what we call module boundary lint rule, which is effectively a lint rule which we created and which we set up for every kind of package or library which you create in your project. And then we have a top level configuration where you can say you can give tags basically to the projects, right? And usually those tags are in the form of like, like domain area sales, domain colon products or something like that, as well as type, whether something is of a type feature, whether something of a type shared, something of type core, things like that. So it's just strings which you can attach to projects in, in some part of the configuration. And then you can specify the relationships that can be possible, right? So you can say, okay, all projects of type like domain sales should only be able to depend on projects which are also of that type sales or from that same domain, right? Or are from type shared, right? And so in that way, you can actually have an automated rule that runs on CI that kind of forbids like arbitrary imports from different projects, right? So you can kind of create those nice boundaries. And it's actually very simple setup, very easy to, to integrate in CI because it's really just like a lint rule run on the workspace. But it can help a lot to actually keep those domains sane and, and nice boundaries within those projects. There's also cool additions like, because that is just like the very entry point if you want, but sometimes you even want to, to have like rules that say like, you shouldn't be able to import, I don't know, React in an Angular-based project, right? Or an Angular-based library. You can even do that. Like we have features like can define band imports for a certain type of projects. And so you wouldn't be able to do those imports in a project, otherwise you get a lint error. But you definitely need to have some sort of such tooling in place to keep your, your workspace maintainable in the long run. Oh, I like that a lot. We've talked, actually, we actually have a couple other episodes recently that I'll, I'll link up in our show notes where we've talked about linting and ESLint and linting rules and, and sort of rules of thumb for when to do that. But mm -hmm. I think this, this is something that I is underutilized in our space of like, okay, you, know, you just because you can do anything doesn't mean you should do anything. Oh yeah. And let's define what good code looks like to us and create a bunch of lint rules around that. So you mentioned a couple different types of lint rules. Yeah. Do they fall neatly in groups or classifications? Like what's the set of suggested lint rules that you get for a mono repo set up out of the box and and like where should you be looking as you add different types of functionality to your mono repo? Mm -hmm. So from the Linfor perspective, so we have, whenever you set up, like using those plugins and, and generators, we set you already up with a predefined set of best practice rule for that type of product. So if you have a React library or React application, we have already a Lint extension installed with ESLint that already sets some rules. And you can obviously go and customize and add further rules, right? So everything that is related to like the module boundaries, that is actually just one rule that you can customize because lint rules usually provide options, right? You have the lint rule itself and you can give it options. And in those options, you can actually then specify those relationships which we mentioned before. So that is pretty easy to set up. I can actually link for the show notes a blog post where we do some deep diving into how those lint rules are specified, how you add those tags and make sure that those dependencies are, are set up. But yeah, that is the whole advantage of plugin-based approach that NX has. Because obviously with those plugins, uh, which is similar to Create React App, right? Like you know 
how the product structure looks like. And therefore, you can also provide suggestions. And I feel like that is a very kind of important part or kind of very advantageous part, even for someone that just starts into like doing something like React, right? Because you can generate an application right away. It sets you up with some best practices tooling that are currently on the market. You can start building and then you can dig deeper and actually fine tune those tools or even replace them with different tools once you have get more expertise, right? And at the same time, we see a lot of the benefits also from companies because they are like, okay, our React packages, for instance, always look that way. So they can even customize and say like, we create our own generator for our libraries because we always want to have it like that type of license in there or that type of readme or whatnot, right? So you can really dig deeper and kind of customize the whole setting for your own corporation, right? So I think it's a powerful concept to, to use. I like that. Well, and the other thing you talked about there was linting rules that kind of look at the boundaries between these packages. Like what you have with NX is you actually have this visibility into not just each project, which, you know, yeah. there's value in saying, okay, a project, a React project should look like this. And at our company, we want this X, Y, and Z. But you actually have the superstructure as well. How do the things fit together? And so you can start putting rules in place of, okay, yeah. you know, this type of module can't require that type of module directly or, or what have you. That's super cool. Yeah, exactly. Because at the very core of NX, basically, there is that NX graph or product graph, which built like when NX instantiates in a monorepo, it looks at the structures that it, that monorepo has, looks at your entry points. And, and so you can build up that graph and say like, okay, this is a React application. Here are a couple of packages. These are entry points and stuff, right? And so that structure f- helps doing a lot of optimization. So not just for the lint rules, obviously there's, that is a good point as well, because for the lint rules, we can then say, okay, I can add like those nice texts to all those projects in a declarative way. And then X can transform that into a runtime lint rules, which then executes on CI or whenever you run the command for linting, right? But at the same time, that project graph also serves for a whole lot of things of optimization in terms of like speed and caching, whatnot, which we, which we could like dive deeper if you wanted. So that is really the, the fundamental structure. And you can visualize it, which is actually pretty cool as well in terms of just debugging, right? So very often what happens is like, uh, be it for open source projects. Recently, we collaborate with RedwoodJS as they like mm-hmm. opted into Learn and NX combination. And that gives you also the, the project graph as a side effect, right? And so for me, for instance, not knowing how the RedwoodJS repository looks like, they have a monorepo, right? This is super easy. You go in, NX graph, you see the visualization, you can dig deeper and understand like, okay, what type of package do they have? How do they relate it to each other? Like, where are the imports? What are the dependencies that are required? So it's a very visual way of exploring the structure, basically. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I just spent hours a couple of weeks ago mapping out the dependency chains of our monorepo, which is not using NX. <laughs> yeah, the NX graph, you can actually instantiate it on any repo if you want. Like, you, if you do npx NX graph, mm-hmm. it will work on any type of monorepo setup. So it should be able to identify... The projects and so you could you could even use it for debugging purposes. Interesting, and it works across languages, or is it JavaScript specific? It is mostly JavaScript specific. So if you if you use backend languages, you would need to to give it some hints, like where the entry points are, because like out of the box, if it is just like package JSON files, that is what it looks for and like tries to understand how the structure is. And this is mostly based on like Yarn and npm workspaces stuff, right? So yeah, if you have like backend structures, or like backend monorepos with some other type of technology, you would have to look into. But you could write your adapter for that. So it, it is definitely possible, but maybe not so out of the box. Got it. 
we mentioned this sort of dependency lines as one of the potential gotchas people get when they first start using modern repos or even not first start, but as if you aren't careful that you can easily get into this case of tangled dependencies. Yeah, yeah, as you grow basically, yeah. What are some of the other common downfalls you see and are there tools that help with those? Yeah, yeah I think that the next big thing usually that hits people is simply the speed on CI. So because like from the setup perspective, uh, I mean, like when you use an X, for instance, you can go plugin based or you just go the lightweight mode, basically, where you set up everything yourself and you just use it for the task scheduling. There you basically can set it up on your own, right? You go ahead as, as you want. But the thing that most people hit then uh, at some point is always the speed aspect. So if you, for instance, use, uh, I don't know, plain yarn or NPM workspaces setups, you can do some sort of filtering to just execute some of the projects that changed or, or things like in a PR. But the problem is like on CI, you want to make sure that you capture exactly the projects that are changed, right? So that is, for instance, one optimization that an X can help where it understands based on the Git comments and again, that graph that I mentioned before, well, you actually just changed files in those projects, right? Which you can infer from the graph. So there's no point, for instance, to run the tests for that other project down there because it, there's no relationships between that project, right? And so things like that, like to be able to cut down the times by just simply not running certain commands at all on CI can already help a lot. Most of the times, however, what really helps then is, is the caching aspect, which means like really entirely cache the actual run itself, which we added in the next, uh, well, well over a year ago, mostly, which basically is, is nothing else than it's kind of like memoization for function, right? So whenever you run a given function with the same inputs, right? Those inputs, obviously, for a command being the source code, environment variables, things you even specify, you can fine tune that actually if you wanted to. And if you run that again at some context, right? Then there's no point to run that command. So you could actually just restore the output from a cache, which means restoring terminal output, restoring potential build artifacts like JavaScript bundles that got produced, like those things. And as you can imagine, that speeds up things a lot because then on CI, especially if you share that cache between like developer machines or CI runs and stuff, certain projects get a lot, lot quicker because simply they don't need to be built again. So it just restores artifacts, basically. That is one of the main benefits, I think, that you should have and you need to have if, if you want to scale. If you have a small like NPM package repository or something that just has a couple of libraries, you probably won't notice it. But in a large environment, you definitely will. Yeah, that makes sense. And so... When you're doing that, you're using your dependency graph to know what is it safe to load from cache versus what you actually need to rerun because something has changed? Exactly. The graph is basically at the, the foundation of everything. It's already starting from what can you cut out based on what changed, right? But as you mentioned, at the same time, what do I need to invalidate based on that graph and like what changed within that graph, right? So it's really the, the core part in there. But like the amounts of hours, like I remember, like because we were kind of dog fooding the computation caching or that caching ab ability on our next project and the open source project as well. What we do there, for instance, we run a whole lot of uh, like end-to-end -end tests just to make sure that the f features work. So we really spin up, we publish package locally, we run end-to-end -end tests, generate projects, see whether the structure matches what we expect and things like that. And those take a whole lot of time. And just looked up like the cache which we have right now. And I think like in the last month, we saved like 6,600 hours of computation which is, if you think like that is like 270 days in a month. And so you can imagine, right, like it would basically not be possible to run all those end-to-end -end tests in our repository without the cache. 
So either you drop the cash, right? And you drop end-to-end tests because like it's just not feasible or you have some, some sort of caching. A lot of modern like solutions have some sort of that caching in place because otherwise it's, it's basically not, not feasible. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems, or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know engineer organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using, you know, old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of, you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human in one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use this system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. mentioned a few tools along the way that NX integrates with things like Yarn, Workspaces, there's PNPM, there's Lerna. What are the different pieces in this ecosystem? How do they fit together? And if somebody was wanting to explore this for the very first time, where should they get started? 
Yeah, the best places to start again is like Monorepo tools, monorepo.tools, basically the website that I mentioned earlier, uh, because it, there we also have not just like the, the overview of like what is a Monorepo, what are the potential advantages, but also like the tools that are currently out there and a matrix that covers basically the features. And we created a page, but we reached out to all the authors of the various tools to review it, add like more stuff and like keep that updated. So it is actually an open source page. There's a repository attached at the very top so you can reach out and correct info if there's something that we're missing, which could totally be, right? So we keep monitoring the tooling space, but we all know like how fast things potentially evolve, right? And so in general, like in the JavaScript ecosystem specifically, I think like Lerna was one of the first that got started in the Monorepo space. At least like I remember having it used back then when I had no clue at all like what Monorepo is in general, but I just had the need to have a couple of projects bundled together and then running tasks across those. So Luna was one of the first uh, to start. And there the, the whole approach is basically to have different NPM packages, if you want, with their own node module folders in there. And Luna is the layer on top, which kind of coordinates the running of the tasks and, and like the installation of the packages. And what it also does very well is the whole publishing aspect, because it was kind of made for that. Let's have a couple NPM packages together and be able to publish them doing the versioning, incrementing of the versioning and, and those things. And that's it for Lerna. Um, it was kind of going stale two years ago. And then recently Dan was kind of mentioned that it's kind of an abandoned project. And at that point we, we talked to the maintainer and we took it over the stewardship in May, I think, from the like, novel the company perspective. And so a lot of our NX core team members now also help collaborate on Lerna. So we, we tried to, to optimize, improve it, like um, upgrade all the potential security issues because of outdated packages and things like that. And we also allowed now for a much easier integration with NX as well, simply because it was always possible to run them together. So because you can always use NX on the top as a task scheduler, right? So we integrated that and that things like caching, which Learn obviously didn't have at that time because it just wasn't a thing to have, right? And meanwhile, in that same space, also other tools came up, like NPM workspaces, for instance, and Yarn workspace and PMPM workspaces, they all work in a similar fashion. And in fact, like uh, Lerna recently also then mentioned, you shouldn't use the Lerna bootstrap, which was the, the method for linking packages, for instance, for dependency management within the monorepo, but rather defer to either Yarn workspace or NPM workspace, just because they kept up with the space, they're more up to date. So that is actually also the, the best practice that is mentioned there. And so, yeah, those are the main tools. There are also other similar tools uh, like Lerna. For instance, there is Rush, there is uh, Turbo Repo. There is also then more Lake, I think, from Microsoft that is also in that same space. And all those tools mostly focus on having packages with their node modules, with their single package JSONs within that, and do the coordination on top, right? The task scheduling. And so that is maybe the, the kind of the difference. So an is can do that as well in that space. But then it has also that other side of things, which I mentioned, like the plugin side, which is kind of different from the approach that all those other tools use. So that approach leans more towards what things like, for instance, Bazel provides, right? Bazel comes with a whole set of plugins to just simply optimize some things. That means it is more, if you want, involved initially to set up, because obviously the plugins kind of give you some constraints, right? Where you move within that and you can customize that. But at the same time, like at least from our perspective, for companies, it is much more beneficial in the long run, simply because you have the generators that I mentioned before, but you also have things like automated migrations, upgrading the tools in an automated fashion, right? Which is a big point, because if you have a monorepo with like 
a whole lot of React applications in there and you need to upgrade them at some point. We all know how that goes, right? <laughs> yes, actually, can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. Having just been working on upgrading our build tools and other things, what are you able to do to help out with that? Yeah, so basically, since we have the plugin structure, right? If you use, for instance, uh, the NX plugin for setting up a reactor library or application, then we don't really expose, for instance, something like the underlying rollup config or Webpack config. You can hook into it. So you can provide some Webpack extension where you can provide a custom Webpack file, which then gets extended with the overall rules that we provide, for instance. But overall, it's kind of configuration-based. So the configuration is kind of data that we can then consume from the next perspective. So what you do there is more you say like, okay, for building a React application, I want to use such a Webpack builder, right? which is basically a package from the plugin, from the Narwhal React plugin in that case, that comes with that plugin that we ship. And that plugin obviously knows how its structure looks like. And so the benefit of that in the end is then when you come to upgrade the tooling, for instance, NX itself, but also the tooling uh, like React or other packages that we support based on those plugins, you can just run a command that is called NX Migrate. And so what it will do is it will basically scan the workspace and we'll see like what are the package JSON versions that you currently have. And then we as a, the NX core team provide a set of migration scripts basically that bring you from one version to the next. So that means NX upgrades, which potentially could be like we change some configuration. So we update that configuration for you. So we go in and change like the TypeScript files uh, using ASTs, right? We flip the imports as well as React versions. So you're basically writing code mods to do migrations, if I'm understanding right. Yeah, exactly. It uses kind of a virtual file system to run the, t the, the migrations against, right? To make sure it works in the end, right? So otherwise it kind of reverts operation. But it's very similar. It uses some kind of framework that we built, like a dev kit, which can you, in which way you can basically very easily write those migrations. But the benefits are huge, as you can imagine. Like, as I mentioned before, like some of our clients were on like Webpack 4. When Webpack 5 came out, we basically, with some of the NX upgrades, we provided also those migrations. So it was really just running a single command that would upgrade them to Webpack 5. It would like adjust the scripts and stuff that they had in there. And so it's a mostly painless upgrade. You just sold me on NX. If nothing else you've said today, like that just sold me because I have spent more hours upgrading Webcat configurations and other things. Whew, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, that is the power kind of like behind the plugins, right? Because I can totally understand, and that's also why NX has both sides, because you want to kind of serve both people if you want, right? Because if you are in the space of more the learner type repositories where everything is kind of open, you provide your own builders, what NX does there is really just run the package JSON scripts that you have. And so you can do whatever you want in those scripts, right? Well, in the plugin world, we provide those builders already for you, right? So you configure them. You mentioned like, oh, I want to run it with rollup and I want to have different bundles, you do that via some configuration options, right? Which might seem initially to be more restrictive, but for instance, in a corporate environment, we saw it that to be hugely beneficial because of the upgrades which we mentioned, because that allows us to reason about the structure, right? Because when we write those migration scripts, for instance, we go into that configuration and consume that as data, basically. So we look at what options did you configure? Did you have a custom Webpack file? So if you have that, we need to make sure, go and look into that file and either or notify you simply and look, we migrate the Webpack to five, but look, you have like these and these files there, go there and check that those work, right? Because you customize that. And so while it is kind of a box where you can move in there, and it's not like super rigid, right? You, it is flexible, obviously, but over configuration, right? It gives you all that benefits in the long run. And so we have done Angular migrations for clients, which, which they had monorepos with like 200 plus developers on there. 
and migrating like all Angular versions across all applications and libraries that are in that project, you can imagine, like you cannot really say, well, for like three weeks, everyone stops developing, right? We do the migration, then come back and go ahead with like new PRs. You're in a dynamic environment, right? So you create the upgrades while other people continue merging into the main branch, which is another way why we, for instance, our migrations, you can run them multiple times. So there's actually a file that is being produced, uh, which reference the scripts that need to be run. And so once you merge that, also other open PRs that don't have the migrations yet, they can rebase, run the migration itself, and it would upgrade the, the changes that they have created meanwhile, right? And so that is hugely powerful. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Because as far as I know, or at least that's my experience in all like the plannings and stuff, there's never space for upgrading the tooling. It's always like, yeah, sure, let's do that maybe later or at some point. Because it's, it doesn't show the value. It makes sense, right? It doesn't produce features, of course. You end up fitting it in around the edges. And exactly, it's part of the, a massive maintenance burden. This is all kind of reminding me. So it's interesting that you tackle that side and that that comes out of the same thing that gives you the ability to do generators and things like that, of having this like visibility and this higher level Tech because that tackles the two ends of the spectrum, right? Code creation, but then maintenance, which we know is like the unsung, I don't want to say hero, the part of the iceberg underwater for any sort of software organization is how much time you spend on maintenance. And so if you can yep, yep. make migrations and keeping things up to date that easy, that's a tremendous amount of value. Exactly, exactly. And that's also why it's very appealing usually when you, also with an X, right? Like you can use it in a lightweight setup and like with a couple of commands, you just basically install an X package and you have it running in a PM, PM workspace, right? So this is super appealing because you have full flexibility, you can do whatever you want, but that is just a starting point usually, especially if you are in a more enterprise environment, right? Because then as you mentioned, there comes the maintenance, which is all the things we talked also about, about those boundary rules, right? Which is not really helpful initially, Right. But obviously, as you go, as you allocate more teams to more projects, like you need to have some sort of mechanism in place to also kind of make sure it doesn't go out of shape like six months in, a year in, because you want to obviously, this is an investment, right? A monetary, but so you want to keep it going also in the long run. Those rules let you put in ratchets so that you can't backslide on the quality a little bit. Yep. I really like that. Okay. Yep. So, what's next? What are the unsolved problems in the monorepo world that? you're working on with NX or that you see going on out in the community? Yeah, we have actually a roadmap. So if people are curious on the very details, we have uh, usually on our GitHub repo, there's a discussion section, which has like a pinned entry for the roadmap for NX 15. So we usually have like two big breaking releases, if you want major releases per year. And breaking is actually not correctly because as I mentioned before, we have those automated migrations so they will bridge you over to the next version, which is also one reason why we have those, right? Because we can make changes that are potentially breaking, but we will migrate you over to the next one, changing configuration stuff. That is one goal for us to, to reduce that configuration aspect to some level. And since we kind of integrated with Lerna, we optimize that part a lot. And so we have one entry in that change log or kind of roadmap, which mentions negative configuration. So we want to be able to like kind of reduce repetitive configuration by saying, okay, I know that all my build files should cache all the TypeScript files or something, right? So you can specify that at the global level, at the root of the monorepo, but without having to do it repetitively on every project and things like that. So we go a lot deeper on that side. We also want to improve uh, the basic JavaScript TypeScript integration, the sense of developing TypeScript packages, because we simply see the, the importance of it. And the next is kind of TypeScript first. So you can use it with JavaScript, but from the very beginning, basically, we, 
We generate projects by default with TypeScript. You have to opt out of that if you really want just go plain JavaScript. But we want to focus a bit more on also just if someone wants to create a TypeScript-based package repository where they want to publish TypeScript packages to be distributed and, and those things. So we want to make sure that we have awesome support for that. And we have some support already, like being able to set up again a library with TypeScript and even SWC compiler if you want, uh, if you prefer that one. So things like that. But that is on, on our roadmap to push a whole lot. And then there's the whole distribution aspect, which we started already years ago with the caching, which I mentioned. So distribution of the caching across machines. But that is really just the beginning. So one thing that we already launched a year ago mostly is like the distribution also of the tasks that you, you run on CI, for instance. Because again, knowing the graph, right? And then knowing if you distribute that execution of those tasks, we also have historical data. And so right now what we do, for instance, is you run those tasks in that distributed fashion, we can schedule them and parallelize them in the most optimal way where you can say, okay, I have five agents on my CI at disposal because you need to parallelize at some point. Or we can say we distribute those tasks on all those five agents in an optimal way such that you utilize them at maximum capacity, right? So not just that like the first agent kind of picks up that task that takes like 30 minutes to build and all the other five agents kind of wait there idle after like a minute because their tasks are super quick, right? So things like that, we're investing a, a whole lot and we have it already running and it already shows a whole lot of huge benefits. But there are still some cool ideas which we have to optimize that further. So that is mostly our focus, focus right now. Awesome. I feel like I want to go and try NX now, though our Bono repo has a heck of a lot of Python in it. So I don't know how well it'll pull in. But <laughs> There is actually a Python plugin, if I'm not wrong. Like we have community plugins. And I think I saw some Python plugin coming around uh, at that point, at some point. Because in X in general, it just runs tasks, right? So you can easily also hook in other type of tooling. Because the caching and all those things, the parallelizing of the task and the execution happens at a much higher level. So it's really just triggering some command if you want, capturing the output and caching that output, right? So it's technology agnostics in theory, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, is the Python AST, how similar is it to the JavaScript one, right? Can we do some of those automatic updates and code gen in there as well? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, like you could, you could create your own like extensions to the project graph as well. So we have an API where you can hook in and like tell an X, if you do imports in Python, this is how it looks like. And so you could parse them and f- give that to the NX graph. And once the NX graph has that ability, you can basically leverage those functionality as well. In terms of the, the whole ASTs, that is also something you just trigger. Because for instance, the migrations that we do, it's not always necessarily using uh, the TypeScript ASTs to manipulate files. Very often it's even just like the data, for instance, JSON or the configuration. You just parse the JSON change the keys and write it back to the file system. And that's obviously something you can, you can just create your YAML parser or something, right? Where you parse your YAML files, which you might use with Python. And then I'm not sure like what a Python has some similar things, like an AST or something, but I guess so. So you could hook it into that. It does have an AST and there's, you can manipulate the AST and do, so yeah, there is definitely some of those same capabilities. Exactly. Because the automation, like the automated migration framework we have really just gives you the shell, right? So you have an entry function which gets called when your migration needs to be run based on the versions that you have in your monorepo. And then whatever you do in that function, right, whether you then like use some AST parsing of Python rather than TypeScript, it's really up to you. So you can fill that slot in. So there's nothing magic to say in there. It's more the outer framework. Super cool. Oh, I'm excited. This is good. Do you have anything else you want to leave the JS Party listeners with uh, before we wrap up for the day? 
No, basically, just check out annex.dev. That's our main website. Uh, we're also currently working hard on improving our documentation, which is always an ongoing process, and we all know how hard that is. But definitely check that out. Also follow us on Annex Dev Tools on Twitter. That's probably the best source to get new info. That's where we post our videos that we have on our YouTube channel and, and content that we push out. So yeah, follow us there and ping me or, or us on that Twitter handle if you have questions. Always happy to hear new users and and even users maybe adopting it for Python. We're, we're always happy to see that. Like things outside of JavaScript ecosystem. I can't guarantee we'll adopt it, but I'm definitely going to take a look. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Yuri. And I think with that, we have come to the end. Farewell, all. Take care. And we'll catch you next week. If mono repos are new and interesting to you, how about stacked diffs and PRs? We had two of the creators of Graphite on the changelog for a deep dive on the subject. Here's Tomas Reimers telling us about the big difference between open source projects and companies when it comes to code review. An open source code review and company code review look very different. So if you're in open source, you have a maintainer, maybe some contributors like me, writing like some code, committing it regularly. Someone comes along, they write a pull request. I have no idea who this human is, right? That it frequently the pull request is incomplete. Perhaps it needs tests. The code isn't up to par because we just haven't worked together. All sorts of things can go wrong. And so getting that pull request merged takes quite some time. It's very rare that you find a project where people put up PRs and those PRs get merged very quickly. Flip to a team. What team code review looks like is very different, right? Like Greg and I review each other's code on 10 plus times a day. We know each other at this point quite well. We've been working together for years, right? And so the kind of collaboration software that we need and the kind of collaboration software that you need sort of when doing open source are two different types of collaboration software. Listen to that episode in the changelogs feed. It's called Stacked Diffs for Fast Moving Code Review or find it on the web at changelog.fm slash 491. Of course, the Galaxy Brain move is to hook up to our master feed. That's your one-stop shop for every podcast we publish. Simplify your life, break out of that bubble a bit, and hey, just skip the ones that'll interest you. Why not, right? Find it at changelog.com slash master or by searching for changelog master feed in your podcast app. You'll find it. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly, to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for these banging beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, AngularJS creator Mishko Hevery joins Cable and myself to tell us all about his new web framework, Quick, which is not merely another take on developer experience. Exciting stuff to say the least. Stay tuned. We'll have it ready for you next week. <laughs>